Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden Artist Colors makes the best acrylics, Williamsburg oils, and core watercolors. And you can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum makes amazing coffee. You can head it over to their website at fulcrumcoffee.com and check out their subscriptions. They have an amazing variety that you can choose from and have coffee delivered to your house every month. Everything from light roast subscription to espresso to all brands, single origin. They even have a sunset subscription, a jazz alley night subscription. It's a really cool curated coffee experience that can be delivered to your door. And you can get a discount by adding the code Alfred Studio whenever you check out from the website. Fulcrum Coffee Roasters from Seattle. Check them out. Sky Glabush is a painter born in Alert Bay, British Columbia in 1970, who received his BFA from the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and his MA from the University of Alberta in Edmonton. He's at slow exhibitions at Philip Martin Gallery in Los Angeles, Clint Ronish in Toronto, Project Pangee in Montreal, and Project Normans in Norway. In 2020, his work was exhibited at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa, Ontario. He's an associate professor of visual art at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. In 2024, Sky will have a solo exhibition at Museum London, Ontario. His solo exhibition, The Arrangement of Stars, just opened at Stephen Friedman Gallery in London, and he's had numerous worldwide group shows. I spoke to Sky about his days as a child in the wild, leaving home and heading to California to play music, near-death experiences and epiphanies, painting free, and much more. Here's our conversation. When, like, looking at your experience growing up, is like, well, you don't know any different. It sounds like a very, shall we say, unconventional childhood. (laughs) You know? Yeah, absolutely. moved around like crazy. I mean, your parents sounded like they were just living the dream, like kind of... Yeah. Well, both my parents, like, so my mom is is bipolar. Um, I don't know if she... Well, she was not going to hear this podcast because she has dementia. I don't even know... I don't even know if she recognizes me anymore. I know she would recognize, she might know who I am after a while, and she definitely recognizes photos from the past as being me, but I don't know if she puts this person together with the with who I was when I was younger. So she's not going to listen to this. My dad will, will definitely listen to the podcast. Uh, he, he and I chat all the time, and he's he's also an artist, and... And we talk a lot about art and all these different things. But anyway, both my my mom is for sure bipolar, and, and my dad is, you know, a little bit manic, but 
not in the same way that my mom was. So anyway, when they were young, like in their early 20s, they were really like create, like really out there. Like they made their own clothes. They grew their own, you know, like they tried to grow their own food. It's a hilarious story. My dad told me that when I was in Alert Bay, which is this small sort of fishing village, but it's also a First Nations community. So it's it's divided literally down the middle of the town. White fishermen on one side and indigenous people sort of on the other side. And there was like a bar in the middle where, you know, people would kind of congregate like a really rowdy, wild bar. But anyway, my parents lived on top of the bar. So their apartment was like above the bar and they were trying to grow their own wheat grass and like their own sprout, their own beans and stuff in this apartment. But it's the west coast of British Columbia, uh, not even the west coast, the islands. And um, absolutely no sun for most of the year. And so they weren't <laughs> They were trying to live off their own like wheat grass and whatever and grow, make their own clothes and stuff. And, living above this bar, which you can just imagine must have been the rowdiest, craziest place sometimes. So anyway, yeah, that's where my mom was pregnant with me. And then I was born in that, in this village called Alert Bay. And, uh, and, and it's funny because I met a guy who's the same age as me. His name is Voyager. Um, I think his name is Ivan Voyager. And he's born in Alert Bay. And we're about the same age. And I said, okay, did Dr. Pickup, that was his name, Dr. Pickup, deliver you as well? He's like, yeah, yeah, he delivered me too. So we're pickup babies. So there's a whole bunch of us that were, this guy delivered. And Dr. Pickup was this crazy uh, character because he was, as far as I understand, he was dipping into his own supply. So he was like a morphine and cocaine addict. Oh my gosh. Uh, and um, anyway, so when my mom was about to deliver me, um, she bottled like you know downed a whole bunch of Southern Comfort to try to kill the pain, and then she had the delivery. And then you know, funny things like she said, "I don't want him circumcised. I, I don't want to cut him. I don't believe in genital mutilation." And then he's like, "Oh no, that's fine. We would never do that without your permission. Let, let's just have a look." And he just took me and just snipped my <laughs> foreskin right just off. Took matters into his own hands. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that was Alert Bay. That's how my parents, like they met in a, in a commune, a hippie commune in called Sointula, but then they moved for whatever reason to Alert Bay. And, and Alert Bay is also not only famous for Emily Carr and all the indigenous artists like Bo Dick, who's from there, amazing, amazing uh, First Nations Aboriginal. I think the, the way you say there, the First Nation is Kwakwak, Quack, quack, quack. It's like quite a mouthful. But anyway, they, um, that region is really known for their artisans and their, and their, their potlatch tradition. Like my, my daughter lives out in BC and her husband has been going to Alert Bay for a number of years um, working with Indigenous youth out there. And so he's often invited. He's been adopted into that clan. And uh, the potlatch is still very active. So sometimes it'll go on for like, Two weeks where there'll be these ceremonies and they have these incredible regalia and, and outfits that they make, you know, like the bird, the thunderbird and the orca. And, and so they come out and they do these dances. And, and the potlatch is basically once somebody, um, once somebody amasses a certain amount of wealth, they give the whole thing away. 
So at the end of the potlatch, the, this, the whoever, whoever puts the potlatch on will have no possessions after that. They give everything away. But anyway, so that's where I was, uh, my mom was pregnant and where I was born. And so, yeah, they, it was, they were very um, adventurous, sort of, you know, experimental, both artists, both really radical, sort of anarchistic kind of hippies. And was, was so, yeah, that, that, that? that's what I... Like, uh, I, I, there must have been some other hippies in, in Alert Bay for sure. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't know if it was like if they were just the uh, the artsy hippie, you know, couple in town that lived above the bar, and <laughs> it, it was like kind of an anomaly, or if it was uh, conducive. To... Yeah. Well, out there, like, so I don't know about Alert Bay proper, but the Gulf Islands of Van- off of Vancouver Island, like like Salt Spring and Galliano and everything. Um, there's a bunch of golf islands that are just loaded with, you know, people who who either dodged the draft uh, in the in the Vietnam War and ended up in BC. People coming up from the states, yeah. but also just a lot of hippies from around the world and from around Canada moved out there because for a variety of reasons. But the one interesting story that connects to your question is. Um, my my name is Sky Jeffrey Glabush. So my middle name Jeffrey. My godfather Jeff is a guy named Jeff Gaylor, and he still lives out on Galliano Island. And they had, at one point they had eighty acres of land right along the coast Jeez. in Galliano, which is worth an absolute fortune. Yeah, sure. But the way they got it was they had a hippie commune in the interior of BC, um, and the government said they would. They wanted to expropriate part of their land for a, a well, uh, for a for a, a hydro dam, hydroelectric dam that they would put on their property because water flew, came through the property. And they right. said no. They rejected it. They fought it, and the government just went in and built the dam anyway. Um, and so they're just like this is ours. Yeah, this is ours. <laughs> we tried. Being so nice. what they did, it, which the, yeah, exactly. So what they did is they packed up all of their kids and their families and their chickens and their dogs, and they just moved to the Parliament Building in, in um, I think, in Victoria or in Vancouver, wherever wherever the the housing ministry was. They just camped out, and this went on for a, about a month. And then after about a month, the, the the Ministry of whatever it was, housing, I don't know who, or it was to mean the the the, elect, the people dealing with the hydro dam. But anyway, they said, okay, what do you want? Uh, we got to get you guys out of here. And so they said, we want 80 acres of land. Like, you took our land. We want to move. And they're like, okay, fine. You can get it. Where do you want? And they said, Galliano. And they're like, fuck no. And um, so they said, forget that. And so they just kept camping out. I think it went on for about three months. And then at the end of the time, they're like, okay, fine. 80 acres of land in Galliano. So my father was part of that where they moved to Galliano and they started building homes out there. So because they had so much land, um, they had their own uh, wood um, mill, like their own timber mill. Yeah. So they would, they, would, they would mill their own cedars and Douglas fir, and, and they had very little electricity, so most of this was like hand tools. And they built these gorgeous, they're still out there, uh, gorgeous homes for, the, for families. So my dad being a carpenter, like a pretty gifted carpenter, he was helping his friends Lori and Jeff and others out there um, building building these homes. So I lived out there a little bit, and that that's near Alert Bay. 
So, but Galliano was a whole different community. So some of them were in Alert Bay, some of them were in Sontula, some of them were Galliano and Salt Springs, sort of spread out through through the West Coast. And, and that family that I'm describing, they still live in Galliano. Yeah. Um, Jeff actually became kind of a very central figure to the island. He, he opened, his family opened a hardware store. So the only hardware store in the whole island was Gaylor Lumber or whatever, and it's still there. And, and they did really well. They still live there and they're like, like there's so much a part of the community that at one point one of these developers came in to to make condos or or some kind of housing project on Galliano and and Jeff fought them in court for whatever reason just for the ecosystem of the island or whatever and this went on forever at his own expense and then he won in the end and so they never built that big huge housing whatever development and uh, anyway long story short that hippie kind of stuff is really the the warp and woof of the of some of that west coast um those some of those island communities and they're still there my dad is still my dad lives out in bc still so anyway it's it's yeah that's they weren't the only ones right well a lot of kids who grow up with you know because i'm a child of the 70s a lot of kids who grow up with parents who were, my parents weren't hippies, but, you know, parents who were kind of like leaned into that. The kids either went one way. Usually it was like they kind of like, for at least a stretch of their youth, they push back against that. You know, it's like, well, I'm, I want to take math or science and I don't want to art smart. You know, like my parents are like mm-hmm. loopy. I'll just go in this. And then there's the others. Mm-hmm. I have a few friends whose parents were so just living that way it wasn't kind of like you know a dusting of hippie it was kind of like their whole ethos was just being creative being different counterculture that the kids just grow up like embracing mm-hmm. that it's just they don't know anything else in a way and they go on to like do creative things you know yeah. so uh i don't in in reading about you know as you got older, your propensity to want to move or travel or experience other culture or like do these different things in different places. I mean, was that born out of it? Like, you know, did you went to, didn't you want to go to Belize or like South or Central America? Mm-hmm. And like, was like growing up was being creative and stuff, something that was just day to day life. Or did you think of it mm-hmm. as like this thing I like to do? Or was it just woven into your being? Oh. There's two parts to that, the creative part and then the traveling and the hippie part. And I think the, the creative part, um, yeah, I was always very, like, like, for example, one year I lived in another island called Quadra Island, which is just off of the Vancouver Island, a small little, it has its own sort of little ecosystem. It's, it's like a lush tropical rainforest island. I lived there for a year. My mom had met this guy, really handsome, wealthy kind of artist guy, and they were had a passionate affair, um, and so she moved to his, you know, place on on the island. Um, anyway, and I was only like seven or eight at the time, and I remember that year being alone a lot and spending a lot of time like roaming around this this island um, by myself, doing things, building forts and. You know, there was another little hippie kid not far away from me called Tor, uh, from Norway, and they lived in a geodesic dome. Whoa! So if you came into their house, it was like the food was in there, the the living was it was all just one big spherical dome. It's like silent and, and it was very hu- 
very humid, very, very, very musky, you know, very sweaty. And these, Tor and his parents were full blown off the grid types. But anyway, so as a kid, yeah, there was a lot of creativity and I got really into drawing. So like I would draw for, you know, I would draw for hours and hours and hours. And I was always really into like dragons and science fiction, like spacecrafts and war and, uh, you know, drawing like soldiers and, and tanks, battleships and stuff. So I've always been really into drawing but the creativity was as a kid was much more of a um like a refuge a sanctuary from the shitty craziness around me yeah Uh, i would you know i would withdraw into into drawing um and playing with you know figurines and lego and stuff but it was very much kind of an alone thing that was probably a lot to do with being alone and also being in a kind of chaotic environment. But as far as travel and, and that kind of hippie thing, like I moved around so much as a child that um, I never had I never had an apartment or a house for more than a few months at a time, it seemed. Yeah. You know, like six months at a time was usually a stretch, maybe a year at a time. So uh, when I got older, like when I was 16, when I was in grade uh, 11, I went to this sort of slightly alternative high school in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, in the prairies in, in Canada. And uh, I went to this school because I, well, it doesn't matter, I was at this school for kind of misfits and dropouts and stuff. And what the cool story about that school called Nutana was I met my, well, my best friend and I, we've known each other since we were kids, J.B. Eckle, he's a musician in, in California. You know, we're, played on like Santana's Supernatural album, did produce two songs on that album, like really great musician. Anyway, we were at this high school together and uh, there was a teacher called Al Bond, who was also a hippie, long, long hair. <laughs> and uh, Al was this really, really talented musician. And he taught at Nutana and he taught us how to play guitar. He did class on guitar and so you could just pick your guitar. It was like nylon string classical guitar and he would show you things like classical gas or House of the Rising Sun. And, and he played in this very precise, beautiful way. And he, he just showed, it was a high school class about like folk music, like Bob Dylan and learning to play. It was like the perfect class you could ever imagine. He was this sweet, very gentle, patient guy. And so both JB and I learned to play guitar from Al Bond. And as soon as we started playing guitar, it was like, fuck school. We yeah. both dropped out of school and just started playing music full time. And I went, and that's when I went to California. Um, so when I was 16, turning 17, I went with some friends. We we went across the you know Canada towards BC, and then took the Pacific Coast Highway right down to. We were on our way to Belize, but ended up uh, I ended up in Big Sur at a rainbow gathering, and I didn't know what rainbow gatherings were. I just sort of ended up there, and it was just this utopia of like mushrooms and LSD and like free pot and girls everywhere and like and I came I had my guitar and I knew all these folk songs like really well I'd been busking and playing in bands for a couple of years so um or a year at least a year and a half whatever it was like but I was playing all the time and uh so when I got there I was just sort of roaming around playing music and and kind of attracted like people around me and I was attracted to them so anyway I met these rainbow gathering people I'm like this is it this is my these are my people. And uh, I met a couple girls that were a little, one was younger than me, one was older than me. And they're like, 
when the rainbow gathering was done, they're like, well, just come with us. We're going to go to San Francisco and you can, we'll, we'll sort of stay together and, you know, whatever. We're kind of friends. Like, I wasn't a romantic thing at all. We're just hanging out with these girls that I really liked. And we got a van, we bought a van, and we moved to San Francisco and we we're all living in this van on the edge of Golden Gate Park. Um, is this late 80s? So, yeah, this is 87. Okay. God, yeah, and that was when the all, oh fuck, you can't even imagine <laughs> that. It, it was the height of like the Grateful Dead. Um, they were kind of making a comeback. It was like a touch of gray and stuff was out, I believe, uh, and they hadn't had a single like that forever. I remember so that were, video? Was this, that was an epic video. Yeah, that was a crazy. Video. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I was in San Francisco with these Deadheads. Uh, one was from Vancouver Sherry and the other one was from Carmel, California. And, uh, and then we met this Jewish kid from New York called Cor and the four of us were living together. And then I met my girlfriend. Anyway, long story short, I was in San Francisco at that time and we were doing, you know, we'd go to the Bay, we'd go to Oakland for a show or we'd go to wherever for a show. And, and so there was tons of young kids floating around. There was tons of like, uh, you know, music, free food, like, you know, there were all these missions in San Francisco where you could go in the morning for breakfast and go in the afternoon for lunch. We were kind of milking the system a little bit because we weren't really... But looking back on it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just doing this as a choice. But on, but then I look back and I was like, no, I'm actually full-blown homeless. Yeah. It's just that in my mind it was all fun and games. But it wasn't really because we were basically like just living on the street. So, um, but there was such a huge community at the time in Haight-Ashbury that um, it never really felt like that. It just felt like a big extended rainbow gathering into San Francisco. Most of the people I knew from the rainbow gathering were floating around either at dead shows or in San Francisco. And it was a really, and now what happened though was it didn't take very long before some of the people that I was friends with like the friend group kind of expanded out of just hippy dippy fooling around to full blown coke and heroin people. And they kind of invaded our little scene. Like one of the girls started dating this guy named Johnny, who was one of these trust fund kids from New York who got every week he could go to the the bank machine and take out like $1,500 cash back in 87. So he had like this ongoing heroin supply and it was like once that guy was in the mix then his friends were in the mix and the scene turned really dark for me really dark really fast and i kind of had to figure out what and like the san francisco fooling around thing was fun but then when you get into the actual drug culture of san francisco it was like for me it was terrifying like i couldn't like a lot of the, these young girls that i that i was friends with would become prostitutes yeah because they a guy would get them hooked on heroin and i knew these guys too like i didn't know them but i saw their 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 mode of operation they would befriend these young girls get them snorting heroin and smoking heroin and then shooting heroin and by the time they were really wired they would pretty much do what they had to do to keep that supply and then they would start pimping them out and I was just like these deadhead hippie you know whatever in some ways for some of them it was just a uh, facade to have access to these young people that were really impressionable and vulnerable and coming from all parts of the United States so I saw this unfolding and I got you know I got really really freaked out by it 
But yeah, anyway, so the travel thing, you know, I left school when I was young, so that's probably part of that hippie thing. Like I just said, school is not for me. But when I ended up in San Francisco, I didn't, what happened was a lot of that hippie kind of, um, that anarchistic sort of punk, do-it-yourself attitude fell away into full-blown drug drug land. And I'm just like, I could see the, the facade or I could see part of it being the drug thing takes over you know it was sort of a bit like cancer or something it just takes over everything and after a while it was all about you know like a lot of my friends were getting into speed and and I just like what the what's going on here so you know I I kind of was enamored by it and kind of attracted to it and these people felt like my people my friends it was like I was really connected and then after a while I'm like I gotta get the fuck out of here and I just sort of uh, pulled up stakes and got out of San Francisco, kind of like, I mean, I've, I think I've talked about it on a podcast before, but I had this really, really, really crazy acid trip where I was with these guys who I was telling you they were junkies, right? But what they were doing to get their heroin is they were selling LSD. So they had a supply of LSD themselves. And it was like this crazy heavy duty stuff. So they dosed me and I was so out of it. I was in Golden Gate Park. I was so out of it. I thought I was going to, I mean, it was just this crazy thing. But at that, after that trip, I had lost everything. Like I'd lost my ID. You know, I lost my, my money. I had nothing after it was all said and done. I was just completely obliterated. It took me like actually a couple of weeks before I could even really talk. Jeez. Like I was so... I don't know what they gave me. It probably wasn't even... It was some, I don't know what... But I was just gonzo. Yeah. So anyway, when I came out of that, I'm, I had to sort of figure out what I was doing. And that's when I left, that's when I left San Francisco. And, uh, and I went to Los Angeles. It's another whole chapter. But I met this girl. And so she was a runaway. And the cops grabbed her and took her back to L.A. And uh, so I flew... I, I started, didn't flew... <laughs> fly I I hitchhiked to LA and I got to her house and basically her parents sort of took me in so I lived with her and her parents in in Venice um anyway and that was the beginning of like okay I think this hippie thing has a good side and a dark side and I really want to see if I can focus more on the spiritual you know I want to kind of get out of this somehow and I did I was really lost like I was just completely fried but anyway so you know, that's that's a whole other story of being in Los Angeles with this family, this girl and her parents, <laughs> and then and then going from there and trying to f- figure out how to get back to Canada. And, and just to finish the story, basically, I, I lived with them for a while, but after a while, they're like, look, dude, this isn't working. And um, the dad, her stepdad, gave me a hundred bucks, and there was a thing called the Green Tortoise, which was a bus line that went from L.A. to Seattle. And it was like this hippie bus line. It was only a hundred bucks. So I took my last hundred bucks and gave it to the bus, took the, the, the Green Tortoise from L.A. to Seattle. But I didn't have any money for food. So the whole way along, I was just eating out of the garbage if I could find food out of the garbage. So by the time I got to Seattle, I was so malnourished. I was just like so hungry. And uh, I got up to the border at, at Bellingham, Washington, or wherever the border is. I went to the border. Check. This is a true story, I swear. I got to the border, and I went to the border guard, and I said, you know, I'm a Canadian. I went to the States. I started touring around with the r- rainbow people. I lost my ID. I lost my wallet. I have no proof, but I am a Canadian. Can you let me in? I want to get home. 
and they just let me across the border. He heard, he, he heard it in your voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe he got your accent, and he was like, all right, this is a Canadian. <laughs> yeah, right. So they let me through, and I got to Vancouver, and I went to the welfare station, welfare office, and I haven't eaten in three days. I'm starving. They're like, well, there's nothing we can do for you. I'm like, give me some food stamps. And they're like, we don't have anything for you. You didn't see So I'm like... You didn't go to like... I mean, desperate times, desperate measures, right? I thought... No, I never stole... No, the whole... I never... I had a very kind of strict moral compass. I never stole anything when I was there. Not once. But I did go dumpster diving all the time. But when I got to Vancouver, I was... I thought, oh, I'm home. I'm in Canada. They're going to help me. They're going to give me some food vouchers and I'll figure out my shit. But they're like, no, we won't give you anything. Basically, you're... You, we have nothing for you here. And I said, okay, look, I'm from Saskatoon. Would you give me a bus ticket and I'll get out of Vancouver? I'll go home. Like, fine, here's a, that's, we like that. Yeah. They gave me a one way, one <laughs> way ticket bus, yeah. bus ticket from Saskatoon to Vancouver. So I went from LA to Vancouver and from Vancouver all the way with basically no food. Like I like literally trying to find stuff to eat. So by the time I got home, I was I was down to like 110 pounds or something oh like that. God. So anyway, when, when I got off the bus in Saskatoon after having been gone to California and everything, I was like a like a wraith. And my dad, he, he, he didn't, you know, when you haven't seen your parents for like a year or six months or whatever, they're like, hey, he, he just his eyes just went wide. And he just looked at me like, oh, my God, like he, he must have thought I was just a full blown junkie because yeah. I was. Anyway, so when I got back to Saskatoon, he was really cool about it. He's like, look, you're too out of it to live at home, but I bought this van. You can have this van. You can live in the van on the property. And I'm like, perfect. I'm used to that. So I had this. <laughs> yeah, so he gave me a van to live in. It was the perfect transition zone. So for about a month or so, I lived on the property just sort of coming in. And nobody even saw me just sort of coming and going at odd hours and and uh, and coming down from from being totally whacked out of my mind for however long <laughs> that, must have been, that must have felt good to sort of reset. yeah it was great it was so cool that he did that because it was like any pressure i would just split yeah and he must have and known. i and he, i he just had a feeling he must like, have known this this yeah. kid needs some time here you know it's funny as a parent yeah you know i think about i had a similar i mean not as Jesus, not as extreme as yours. You went deep dive, but you know, I did the driving across the country with no money, had no food, ended up at City Lights bookstore and was reading poetry inside. And you know, you mm-hmm. learn a lot from like those experiences and, and probably cheated death here and there along the way once mm-hmm. or twice. Mm-hmm. And I think it really gives you like this deep well of experience as a person especially if you're creative or talking about things or the way you view the world you know it gives you this deep but as a parent i would never wish that on my kids like that kind of crap I know. you know what i mean like i remember being well that's a thing for my dad is like i would phone him from like arcadia like some just whacked out shit suburb in la and i'd be like I'm like, hey, dad, how's it going? He's like, good, what's up? What, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just hanging out with these guys. And like, what are you guys doing? I was like, ah, well, they're all coke. They're all crackheads and like junkies. And it's like, really? What, what do you mean? Like, well, you know, I just got in with a bunch of guys that were just smoking crack. And and I was selling acid. And it was just like, and I would, and he would, he was really cool not to overreact. He's like, really? Oh, sounds pretty sketchy, man. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of sketchy. And then, okay, see ya. And then I wouldn't call for another month or two weeks. And, and then when I would call, it would be the same thing. It would be some crazy, you know, I was I was in like uh, some other part of California. And I would just sort of 
check in with him once in a while. But as a parent, like I can't imagine being like, I can't imagine how terrifying that would be. Or you're just, you're like, Hey, go get him. (laughs) Maybe the mindset there is just like, I, you know how it was when part of it is environmental too. It's like, you know, there's this thing that comes up a lot in talking to artists. It's like, well, oh, what, of our generation, I was like, oh, when we were kids, we just played, we went out and there was yeah. no way for parents to keep track of you because there's no phones or anything. So you just go out, be home yeah. by night and you go out yeah. and there's nothing to do. So you're like kind of like being creative. You're like building shit and like, you know, in a park, like yeah. twigs or something. And, and that like is, we, we romanticize that as being good for creativity, you know, whereas nowadays we just want to consume it. Like everything is right here and you could just experience it all. So, but I, I do think that back then it's partly socially conditioned, but you know, parents were probably just like, whatever, go do your thing. You know, you can't yeah. obsessively follow yeah. or keep track. So, and then if you're a yeah. kind of a, I don't want to say a selfish parent, but if you're, you know, a parent who's more into what you're doing and your kid is just like, go, just don't get in trouble, go do your thing. I mean, it's a recipe yeah. for some wildness. I mean, if my kid called me and said I was around crackheads and, you know, like I would be like, I would be on the next, I would be in the car <laughs> yeah, flying down there, you know, but then I think it's a condition, part of that's conditioned by our environment or whatever. But he must have yeah. had great faith that you were going to pull it out. And he did. Well, that's, you're, you're really, that's, everything you said is really true. I mean, he was afraid, but he also resigned himself to, hey, this kid is on his, yeah. he's doing his thing. And, and he does have, he's a very spiritual person, quite a religious person. He said he was praying for me the whole time. And he must, something was going on, because I, I, I narrowly skated by so many um, unbelievably dangerous situations that somehow I just kind of got through um, but yeah, you're right. It was a different time, and you're. And when I was a kid, that's exactly what happened. They they would just say, "Get out of here," or they wouldn't even say, "Get out of here." There were, a lot of times when I was a kid, there was nobody home, so I would just be gone all day. I would come back in the evening, and like especially in the summertime, we'd be just gone until dark every day. Yeah. We'd come home after when it got dark, we'd come home, and uh, that was my whole. You, uh, that my generation and anybody younger than me is or older than me. Sorry. That's how it was, man. We just, uh, like, you'd get home after school, there was nobody home. You'd usually go to a friend's house and they'd, you know, raid their fridge. And then, yeah, but the, I, I should, I think I want to, I think I want to, um, I want to de-emphasize the, the term crackhead because I feel like that's maybe a little bit. Oh, did I say that? Dismissed. Whoops. No, I said it. Oh. I said it. I know it was me. But what I mean was when I went to Arcadia, I met these, they were deadheads. They were young kids, but they were young, like 15, 14, yeah. 16. But they were smoking crack. So it wasn't like they're crackheads in the sense that I don't think that's a term that I would really, you know, thinking back on it, really apply to anybody. But the, but when I would go to a party in Arcadia, it was crazy because there'd be no music. It'd be quiet. Weird. People would just be sitting there smoking that's, crack. That's because like it's scary, just, isn't it? Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Like, and they're young, like 15. And, I'm just, and I watched them. And they have this, um, they would call them carpet crawlers. So basically, if you're doing a lot of freebasing or whatever, you think maybe there's one more rock hiding in the carpet. Like you may have dropped a rock. So you'll just see these kids like on the ground, just sort of like 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 cockroaches or, or something, just like a carpet, like a vacuum cleaner, yeah. just looking for, 
And it's like no music, not talking, someone rolling around on the carpet looking. And it's just like, what have I got myself into? Yeah, that's not the red flag. I mean, you don't have a red flag in your arsenal anywhere. You know what I mean? If that's what you're hanging around and seeing. Well, I wasn't. See, I had this. Yeah, I had this very strict code. So I never did any narcotics. Like I never tried cocaine. I never smoked crack. I never did heroin. I was afraid of it. Like I saw these people. And especially the heroin people, like I saw them as like le- night of the living dead. Like I saw them as zombies. Like I was afraid of them. But, but why was LSD okay? I mean, LSD has fried many of the individual. You know what I mean? Um, I would take a different stance on LSD and MDMA and mushrooms. I think now uh, there's a lot of um, research especially being done at MAPS and John Hopkins um, University. There's a lot of research being done on psychedelics and post-traumatic stress and people dealing with terminal illness. And I think um, in in the right circumstances, something like MDMA or LSD or, or like a high dose of LSD actually can have this very therapeutic effect now that's not why i, I was gonna say in my mind that's, that's not that's not the research yeah. you were tapping into when you were <laughs> well it, but it was it was though oh really you knew that stuff then? yeah no no i didn't know any of it but i'm saying i could have gone in any different direction all my friends were doing coke and heroin so it would have been so easy for me to say hey yeah. pass me the thing but i was on this weird what i thought of as a spiritual path so i was only doing these things like mushrooms or lsd because i thought it was mind expanding right and and so these trips I was having, because I was taking so much, it didn't do very much to me. And I, it's kind of like microdosing, right? Because I was just like all the time. But anyway, the point is, looking back on it, I had that ego death experience where, you know, that one I was telling you about, where you I woke up and it was like, it was like someone just pushed a button and reset. You know, I I was totally gone yeah and i was very i was very humbled by it like when it when it was all said and done i i ex- had this extreme sense of like i was a small little thing in the universe and i wasn't a huge uh personality i wasn't a great person i wasn't you know a mystical warrior i was a very weak tiny little organism in this vast universe and and I was humbled deeply by that experience. And I think there was something about that that was akin to the therapy that I'm hearing about that they're doing with people with post-traumatic stress, right. like soldiers and stuff, because it was such a, a wipeout, like, you know. And so what happens is you, you lose control, right? And then you're hanging on, you're hanging on, you're hanging on, you're hanging on, and then you realize... I can't hang on anymore. I got to let go. And I think there is, you're right, there is a f- fraction or there, a percentage of people that that letting go means full-blown um, psychosis. Yeah. It happens. You blow your brains out. But for me, that, that letting go was, was I gave up something that I was holding on to. Well, I'll just, I'll just tell you what happened. Like I, the, the trip was so intense I, I was at this. I was I was running around in Golden Gate Park, and in my mind, I thought I, I have to kill. Like I want to die, mm-hmm. because I was 
I was afraid of something behind me, so I was running away from it. So I got to a cliff, and I'm like, yeah, there's the cliff. And I just jumped off the cliff thinking, this is it. I'm jumping to my death. But it wasn't a cliff. It was just a hill. So I just rolled down the hill. And when I got to the bottom of the hill, I thought I had died. And I looked up and I saw this beautiful tree, like this, you know, like in the in the movies, like a huge oak tree with the light sort of shining behind it. So it's just dark, and you see the the silhouette of the tree. Anyway, I saw this tree and I thought that was the heaven or hell or the next world. I just thought, oh, it, it worked. I jumped off the cliff. I'm in this new place. And then there would be a person there, like my aunt or or my fa- my father's friend, whatever. There would be a person, and and they were looking at me, and then they would just start laughing. And like, oof, this is shitty. And then it would be another person. And then it was every single person I had ever met in my life would be like a, like a ring of people, like hundreds and thousands of people. And they were all laughing, like in this really horrible way. And it would just build and build and build and build, like a carousel, like this like circle of people. And then I was just like, oh my God, this is horrible. And then it would all stop. And then there'd be this little voice that would say, and now you're dead. And I'm like, thank God. It's over. And then it would start up again. So this went on three times. So the, so the first time it, it, so first time it went to this crescendo, I'm like, this is the worst experience I've ever had. I know that I'm tripping my brains out, but I also know that I'm on the verge of a full-blown psychosis because right. I can't break the loop, and this loop is fucked. Yeah. But the, so the first time it happened, I didn't know what it was going to do. And I was like, when it was over, I'm like, thank God. But when the second time it came back, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to happen all over again. And I knew how bad it was. So I was sort of panicking, like, this is horrible. And it did. It, it, it crescendoed. And there were even things like Jesus, like on a cross, laughing. Just stupid teenager, in a way, sort of stuff. But then the third time this was happening, I thought to myself, going back to some of the things that the Baha'i stuff, I didn't want to use the word Baha'u'llah, who is the founder of the Baha'i faith. I didn't want to use that word because I thought if he's in this group with my father and my mother and my girlfriend and my grandma, all the people that I ever knew laughing their heads off in this cacophony of wicked laughter, if he's in there, then I am truly fucked. So I I didn't want to let that name enter. And at one point I just said the name. Baha'u'llah, and the whole trip just evaporated, and I was stone cold sober, and I came out of it, and I'm like, okay, so that was like this, it was like this letting go moment, and I really kind of, I just sort of, I said, okay, fine, I give up, I, I can't do it anymore, I give up, and it was like this ego death thing, like you hear about, and so when I came, kind of came out of that, I was literally a different person, like, I was quiet, I was sh- not shy, but kind of reserved I was humbled and when it came out of Golden Gate Park that night there was a bakery it was like five in the morning and there was a bakery and there was these Mexican dudes working the early morning shift at the bakery when I came out of the park I went to go to them to say you know what time is it or like what's going on they ran back inside the bakery and locked the door that's how crazy I was looking like I had blood all over my face and stuff because I was biting my tongue and my lips anyway so I there was a bus that came by and I just I jumped on the bus and I said to the driver I don't have any money I don't know where I'm going but do you go by Haight-Ashbury he's like yeah it's okay jump on no money and so he he drove me on the bus middle of the morning San Francisco and he let me out out sort of near where I where I was hanging out kind he was being kind to me 
And I'm like, I look, look back and I think about my, I was probably crying. So there was, you know, and I, my face had been in the mud. So it was covered in mud and covered in blood. And I was just like, how could someone just be kind to a guy like that? Like let them on the bus. So when I got off the bus, I walked around. It was still first thing or nobody was awake. I was eating pizza crusts off the street. And I thought, this is a low, this really is a low, like you're really, like in my mind, I'm like, you're, you're gone, man. Like you're toast. So it took me a couple weeks to recuperate from that experience. But in the course of that time, I decided I wasn't going to just willy nilly float around anymore. I was going to like focus on a spiritual path. And that was a real turning point for me. It is an interesting parallel because a lot of times you hear about people who have like something that happens in their life where they have a near-death experience. It sounds very mm-hmm. similar to that kind of like awakening where you come out humbled and you, you're you like a totally mm-hmm. different person afterwards. And I was going to ask yeah, too, totally. that did all the, over the course of this, you know, adventurous period in your life <laughs> of, of exploration mm-hmm. and discovery and... Um, do you feel like between the sort of the psychedelics and the visuals of all that, and it, you know, and then also all the stuff you just saw traveling around, I mean, I'm guessing that informs your, you know, your visual explorations on canvas. Well, I think the trippy part certainly does. Um, I was alone a lot. Like there, I, I look back on that time, like I would go from say like. Los Angeles to San Francisco quite regular and I would just hitchhike and sometimes I'd get let off on I-5 which isn't exactly a beautiful it's just a really big huge highway I think it's called the I-5 and um, and I can remember walking from one town to the other all alone and being in nature and feeling like it's going to be fine because nature is taking care of me <laughs> yeah. like that real hippie kind of trip but I but I believed it like like I believed the universe would give me what I needed I would get water when I needed water I would find food when I needed food I, I can remember being kind of in the desert and being just you know the sun just sort of feeling like the sun was my you know was it wasn't just a source of light it was a source of life in me you know like like it was it was giving me something it was like guiding me so the kind of connection to nature that I had on that sort of deep existential level of being like I'm a part of nature but also it's like my it's like my it's like my not my ancestors but like it's it's watching out for me it's not it's not a random force it's a it's a benevolent guiding nurturing it's also scary but but it but it's also this life force so I think that's it very much a part of my work like trying to use nature as a kind of allegory for that deeper um that feeling of connectedness that I felt and it wasn't just like the LSD thing to be honest with you after a while I didn't even need LSD because I was sort of like tripping all the time almost like 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 when I got back to Canada for months after that, I was still kind of <laughs> in that kind of like where you just see things like you hear little noises and it's like they're amplified or, or the grass seems to be alive, like whatever. So yeah, you I think that part of it is, it, don't you think? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Opened up to it. If you play music, you know, this is playing music. If you go into a studio and you record a record and you're playing with other people and you see how the, you know, the bread's made in a way, when you listen to music, 
moving on from that, you can hear the cowbell. You can hear like the bass line separately. Like it just teaches you to see it in a different way, and you can pay attention to more pieces of it. You know what I mean? And I think that yeah, it's a it's a great analogy. You, know, you don't have to use psychedelics to really look at nature and see the sort of you know. There oftentimes when I'm out here in Brooklyn and I look up and it's you know the sun dog thing where there's like the little prism prisms yeah. on each side of the sun and I'll point it out to someone and they'll be like, oh yeah, didn't even see that. And it's like it's yeah. there. You just have to look for it, you know, and and, and pay attention in a way or, or or be keyed into it. And we miss so much in our day-to-day of just, you know, living life and getting caught up in our own narrative. But that relationship you're talking about to nature and this sort of symbiotic, we are part of nature and it, it can provide and it can take away or whatever, that's not a um, a sort of avant-garde idea. or That's not like something strange. We are. We're just cells. We're just part of everything else, you know, and that's why we mm-hmm. grow and then we die. That's like any plant. That's like any whatever you know any biome of whatever it's there's just a lifespan to it and you know we think we're special because we're humans and we have a narrative that we're you know trying to control and all that but at the end of the day we're just part of this whole you know um, biology of of this world that we're living in and then you could you know there's probably parallel existences to that, that sort of looped experience that you're talking about I mean we've all had those dreams you know where they seem really lucid and you wake up and you're like, oh, thank God that wasn't it. Or you wake up and you're like, oh, that was so, that was a nice dream. Want to get back to that? You know what I mean? It's, yeah. I, it, I think it's all living within our sort of like our perception of reality and our yeah. perception of our life. And you can shape that in different ways. And I mean, you know, that's, I think as artists, we're kind of creating another lane you know, of of understanding, of paying attention to our surroundings and our relationship to our life, but all in our world, but also creating another parallel world that creates a schism between that you can create a greater understanding about existence or you know each other and our relationships to life and our existence through that gap, and that's why I think art has sort of mysterious draw where people, maybe they don't believe it or I don't get this or whatever, but they're intrigued by it or they have a visceral reaction to it one way or another because it, it does create that sort of like parallel world, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really insightful way to look at it. Um, and, I, and I think what you said earlier about music as being kind of a language that once you understand it, or you, you know, you never really understand it. But the more familiar you get with it, you hear, oh, that's the, that's the melody line, that's the harmony, that's the, you know, arpeggio or the, you know, the triad, or that's the, you're in a key of this, and you can hear them shifting from this key to this. Like you start hearing things in music, um, and you you see that it is a language. But I would say nature is a language. Um, that's where art to me comes in is that art is the exploration of the language of nature the language of reality so i do think we're special however i don't think i'm i'm more special than a monkey or an elephant or a bird i'm not i don't mean it in a hierarchical way i think every organism has its own unique kind of reality that's special and, and, and it has its own reason in a, or not reason, but it has its own sort of purpose in a sense. But I do think there is something different about us, which you 
alluded to a little bit, which is the narrative. I think we are a narrative. We're a storytelling monkey in a way. But I think the... Um, I don't think that's a small thing. I think the fact that consciousness is embedded in narrative or that like we like to sort of understand consciousness or we use a, our, our consciousness and our, the story we tell seems to be very connected. And in, in religious terms, um, if, you, if you're interested in Buddhism or, or, or Hinduism or any of the sacred traditions, um, Christianity, Islam, basically what they all share is this idea that revelation isn't just a bunch of fancy, nice words that are inspiring. Revelation is the core um, impetus behind reality. So anybody that's not Jewish, for example, would say, or not, I shouldn't say anybody who's not Jewish, but if you were a, someone who really believed that the word was the impetus for creation, <laughs> you'd be like, uh, when you read the Old Testament, for example, you, you have this, this concept, which is the word pre, pre-figures or predates or is, the, is beyond, before reality. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's, a, that's a tenet that a lot of people say, that sounds ridiculous to me. I think that's ridiculous. However, there are a lot of people in the world that don't think that that's ridiculous. But, but it's not, I'm not, I'm not putting it forward as a literal thing. I don't mean literally someone sat down like a guy with a beard and write words and then reality came. But what I mean, what I think that means is that meaning is there before the universe. Meaning is there, like we don't come and just plop our little meaning onto something that's arbitrary and chaotic and random. No, meaning has always been there. Meaning will be here long after we're gone even. So consciousness to me is something about you recognize the meaning behind these experiences as being like there's something educating you. There's something, it's like a parent. There's something asking you to come higher. There's something propelling you to go forward. Art isn't just a random kind of like, oh, let's make some cool little shapes and sit around. No, if you go back to the early, early, earliest formations of art that exist on planet Earth, the indigenous people in Australia... The, uh, the caves in Lascaux, whatever, you'll find there's this kind of sense-making or, or, or like story-making uh, use of art. It's, it's, it's crafting a kind of like understanding of, of our relationship to, the, to ourselves and to nature. And I think that is the core uh, essence of what it means to be human, is that kind of like... You know, something is happening to me, but I'm going to try to understand it. And in my effort to understand, I'm going to try to communicate with others or I'm going to try to listen to others in a way to make sense out of this. And that making sense, uh, that making sense apparatus or, or, or capacity to me is, is, is so, 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 so important. And that's for me why, why poetry is so interesting and why music is so interesting. I mean, sometimes it's just, it's just passing, not, it's passive, like I listen to music and I rock out, you know, like sometimes I'll listen to like Deep Purple or Black Sabbath, just like, yeah, fuck yeah. But, yeah. but sometimes it has this incredible healing, like, you know, it, it's, I need it, it's nourishing. So why is it nourishing? And I think partly it, is, it provides a kind of meaning for me, it provides a kind of direction. So I don't, I'm not contradicting what you said or, or trying to take 
you know, up an alternative stance to what you said. I just think that there is something kind of, there is something unique about our, our desire to tell stories and our desire to make meaning out of things. And I think art is absolutely um, intrinsic to that, primordial. And, and everybody is engaged in it, whether they like it or not. Like everybody is engaged in meaning making. However, there are, I know some young guys that might be like, I'll get up in the morning, you know, get high, jerk off on, you know, porn on my computer, eat a pizza pop, play video games all afternoon and repeat it the next day. <laughs> right. So there's a meaning there too, though. And the meaning is I kind of just want to be plea. I just, I, I kind of just want to be comfortable and satisfied and left alone and but but when you meet guys like that it doesn't take long before they reach a really 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 profound state of depression and loneliness yeah so then so then you know that 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 path wasn't so it is you you did find meaning in it right the meaning was i I like this i'm getting high i'm eating pizza pops all it's all good but after a little while i i guarantee you, you do that for six months and, and, and that person is so alienated and alone. So then you know you need a, you need a relationship. You, know, you need friends. You need a community. So, so my point is, your actions are actually what, what define your sense of meaning. So you might think this is a meaningful way. Like, for example, you might have a job that you hate. And you go and you do it. And you come home and you, like, get drunk. And then you go back and do it again the next day. So, you, so you're actually demonstrating what you believe. You believe that really, if I just go up, show up to work and do my job and come home and get drunk, the, the meaning for me would be that you're, you, don't really, you don't really see much beyond that. You're kind of like, you're just basically trying to survive. You're just trying to get through the day. So I say, look at your actions. And then that sort of defines what you believe in. And I think everybody has a belief system. Even if, even the junkie, like when I met these guys in San Francisco, like there was one that was particularly bad. He's like, I'm good. I'm going to do this until I'm dead. And I know death is right around the corner. I know that I'm going to OD any day now and I don't care. This is how I want to go out. I just want to, I want to blast myself into oblivion. So, okay, just to summarize all that, because I'm not, I'm not trying to do a rant. I just, I, when I'm, what I'm trying to express is that I think life is about trying to understand our actions and our relationships. And in our life, we have these, you know, we have this whole host of experiences and we're trying to extract some sense of meaning from it. Even if we don't believe we are, that in and itself is also a form of trying to extract meaning. The fact that it's meaningless is another story. So in that storytelling or narrative form, I think art is absolutely essential. And, I'm, and to me, it's sad that not more people are... Like with music, it's quite you know, ubiquitous. But with art, I think most people aren't that connected to it. And I think it is primordial. I think it is intrinsic. I think everybody has that, that desire. So um, for me, it is a, it's a life and death thing. Yeah, I think with art, it gets crushed out a little bit more as you get older. You know, because of people's, uh, and that might be a problem yeah. with like the quote unquote art world or, you know, mm-hmm. when someone sees a banana taped to the wall and they're like, man, eh, this is, 
you know, but, uh, but yeah, everyone starts mm-hmm. drawing and it's such a primal yeah. creative expression at some point in that path, people say, Oh, well, I'm not good at this, which is terrible to feel like you're just going to limit yeah. yourself because I can't make something look just like something else. So this, I'm not good at this or this won't pay any bills. So I can't do this, you know, that kind of thing. It's like music yeah. has, it's terrible. Everyone listens to music. Well, not everyone, but you know, most people who have a soul listen to music. So it's, it's, there's less questioning about it. It's like people will say like, well, yeah, it's hard to make a living as a musician, but, but we all listen to music. You know, not everyone goes to a museum, so they don't have that same relationship to it. It's a bummer because it's, you know, everyone yeah. starts off drawing and they're usually amazing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's just. Yeah, they are amazing. It gets squeezed out of us. You know what I mean? Like the desire or I don't know, the lane to do it, you know, and I guess with music too, where a lot of people feel like, oh, well, I'm just not good at it or, but I think yeah. it's, it, there's a little more it's a little more democratic. Like anyone can pick up a guitar, you know, and just play or whatever. So, and, and people don't expect well, you to be Chopin whenever you're <laughs> doing what you Yeah. Doing. I had, I had an experience where it got sort of like to, to illustrate your point, but I went to Guyana in 2000, just before COVID. I actually, when I was coming back from Guyana, people in, in Guyana were telling me about COVID. So I just sort of skipped. I just got back before it hit hard. But anyway, when I was there, I was invited by this, this school to come and, and do some art stuff and they had arranged for me to go to these prisons and I was sort of afraid of it but I thought you know what what's going to happen like I'll be surround I'll, there'll be people protecting me like there'll be guards and you know I'm part of the school it should be fine but I was slightly apprehensive yeah because Guyana is a very volatile country and very, very poor. So anyway, this is just to this point about everybody understands art at some level. So I got to this one prison. There was two that I went to. The first one I'm not going to talk about because it was mostly young guys. Mm-hmm. And they were like, they had a big chip on their, not a big chip on their shoulder, but it was much more kind of, it was much more apprehension about why I was there and what we were doing. And we did some really beautiful stuff together, but it wasn't quite the same. So the next prison I went to, though, was one of these crazy ass, like the prison was so, like, there was a prison in Guyana, in Georgetown, Guyana, the city that burnt down. And it was burnt down in a riot. So it was kind of burnt down on purpose. So they had 900 prisoners that were kind of like, you know, there was nowhere to put them. So they just stuck them in this other prison in an open area, like an arena, like a stadium, like an open area thing with basically no guards. So imagine sticking 900 like prisoners together. Gladiator. No cells. Just like, just, yeah, gladiator. Survive, yeah. Honest to God. And they, they used to refer to that prison, that open area as Jurassic Park. That was the name they had for it. And they said life in there was like, Worthless, Like you could have someone killed for a pack of chips or whatever. But anyway, so I went to that prison and um, there was a group of men in there. And when I came up the stairs, so where we met was in this sort of uh, guards, like a lounge where the guards could meet and have lunch and stuff. They let us use this area on the edge of the prison. We weren't actually in the prison. We were, we were on the prison grounds, but in this guard sort of... Uh, officers club type place 
So I got there and we introduced ourselves and, and they were, these were older guys and mostly black, but also Indian, but um, all Guyanese, obviously. And uh, anyway, this, to, I don't want to go into a huge, long diatribe about this, but what happened there was really, I was gonna, supposed to do some stuff with art with these guys. <laughs> and before it started, they, they all stood up and they all grabbed hands, like in a circle, like we're all holding each other's hands. They said, we're gonna say a couple, we're gonna say some prayers first before we start. I'm like, yeah, cool, man, sounds great. And so one guy would start saying a prayer, but it was so from the heart. It was just like, you know, it was the most move. And then the next guy would do it. And then like all around the group, people would say some, some prayer. And then they would be like, okay, now we're ready to start. <laughs> and by this time, I was just already kind of blown. Like, like to say I was blown away doesn't even, I was just like, just like obliterated almost. But then they're like, okay, let's sing some songs. And they sang a song, and I had, and then, and then one of the guys, they had a band, like with a drummer and a bass and an electric guitar and acoustic guitar. And then at one point, I said, "Well, I play guitar too." And they, oh, play a song. So I got up and started playing a song. I have this on video too, by the way. I start playing the song, but it's a call and response. Mm -hmm. So it was easy. So I could just say a line, and then they would repeat the line. So I would make a, a I was playing this riff, kind of a Richie uh, Havens kind of motherless child sort of riff, droning a. A minor kind of riff and I would say a, I was making it it was all improvised so I'd make a I'd make a line and then they would come back like this chorus of men just like boom say the line back like bang and then I'd do another line and bang and then they knew the line and they'd do the line and I'd do the line and this went on for about 20 minutes and I was just like it was one of the greatest musical experiences that I've it, oh, I wouldn't say one of them. It was the greatest musical experience. But then after that, it was like uh, the feeling of love and the feeling of spirit was so intense. I can't even describe it. So then we started doing art. And it was just like, you know, these men were in the, this horrible prison. Some of them were never going to get out. Uh, they were doing like a life sentence. But the love and the camaraderie and the, and the kindness... And the just the sheer spirit. So in the West, like in New York or in Brooklyn or Vancouver or Toronto, we have this feeling like somehow we we have what's good, you know, like we have wealth, yeah. and that these people in Guyana or wherever are poor. But if you think about art on another level, you think if you think about art as being a transmitter of energy, a transmitter of spirit. What would, be, what would be an impediment to spirit? It would be things like apathy, materialism, and like ego. And, uh, so if you take all that away, there is no apathy, there is no ego, there is no pride, there is no ambition. It's just pure art, like pure singing. It's like the wealthiest, like you'll never have an experience like that in the West because we're too comfortable. Like these guys were singing like their life depended on it because actually literally their life depended on it that little group protected one another outside of that group you were on your own like you could easily be killed in prison I, I, when i say easily i mean like nothing like like a cockroach so anyway i was with these men i was i thought i would go in there and do art with them i realized after 30 seconds i was not going to teach them anything they were teaching me something and that's not a cliche like that. Like they were teaching me. And what they taught me was art 
is primordial, is essential, is the stuff of why we're alive. And when you connect it to that deeper sense of um, like it, like it, like if it is urgent in the way it was urgent for them, like if it has meaning in the way it had meaning for these men, it's like the most powerful, most beautiful, incredible thing. And anyway, that's uh, going back to this thing about everybody does art or kids get, gets crushed out of them. Yeah, it does. And I saw in that prison what the true meaning of art is. Uh, and it wasn't what I thought it was. It was. It was like it had something to do with like this profound gratitude and this profound sort of praise for rea- for being alive, and also a kind of a request, like a kind of a calling. You know, like a like you're asking for something. You're, you want you want to you want help. Like it's a plea. Right. And uh, anyway, so I, I kept in touch with some of those guys and. Um, and, it, and I realized after having been there that our understanding in the West of art as being sort of um, sealed off, you know, kind of hermetically sealed off and kind of discreet and aesthetic and like, you know, sort of passionless in a way, just sort of sitting there on the wall. It becomes a commodity. It has, a, it has this sort of va- monetary value. You know, that's one aspect of it. But um, yeah, I think that other one that you're describing that children experience when they're little and what I also experienced when I was when I was in this down south in this in this place um, to me I think yeah, that's to me where where I where I what I'm hold that's what I kind of hold on to in in some ways as a kind of like a bit of a guide. Yeah, I think a lot of Sorry that, to go no, on. No, and on that's now. good stuff. I I think, you know, in making art, I mean speaking for myself I think a lot of it too is the there's like the whole afterlife of what happens after something's made in the studio is whatever that is right whatever gauntlet mm-hmm. that becomes or whatever it, that's a different thing but like the for me the time of making work like that kind of and it is very self-serving in a way and it's very meditative and flow steady you know of just like being there for hours after hours, forgetting the rest of the world and getting lost in this like universe that you're making. There's something kind of amazing about that, you know? And yeah, I guess maybe that's a little bit selfish, but you know, there's something to be said for that kind of investigation. And like when you were talking about this relationship to trying to understand the narrative of our existence or who we are and all that. And I totally think that is really true. And I think there's also this other layer of, exploring what we don't or can't know which is really beautiful about making right. art in the same way of like when you were ta- we were talking about music and how you can understand it better if you just get to know it and you make it but you can also understand what you don't know which is like if you learn about ghost notes you know or sort of like sounds that aren't played but resonate and you're like oh there's stuff out there it's like when you start making other things are made that aren't even you're doing necessarily or explicitly and there's something beautiful about what we don't know and I think that's you know that's those are like sort of little nuances that of of I would say maybe a deeper existential fulfillment when you're being creative than you know just stuffing that pizza not that there isn't something beautifully um Uh, euphoric about you know stuffing pizza in your face but there is something about that exploration that really sort of I don't know it must resonate on some other plane that we don't know of 
you know, I think there's a lot we don't know yeah. that we resonate with, and it, that's why we do certain things intuitively that we can't even explain. But I'll tell you this much. Mm-hmm. I don't think we talked about your painting that much at all, but I sure feel like when I look at your work now, I, I'm going to see it with a little more, I don't know, there's a little more background, or not background, it's hard to explain. You know what I mean? It'll feel like richer in a way just because of, you know, these experiences you've gone through and your the mindset of, you know, of being creative and stuff. I guess I'm trying to make a case for doing these interviews. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fun for well, me. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad. I mean, yeah, I have a show that opens up at, you know, at Stephen Friedman Gallery in a few days. Um, That's exciting. And so, how long did yeah, you work on that one, work? What, well, not that long, man. Like, like normally it takes me about a year to do a solo show, um, and if I'm really cranking it out, maybe eight months or something. But I, I really, I basically did this one in three months, and uh, it was it was a deadline that they gave me that was a really tight deadline, and they're like, you know, this is the only time. Oh, so you finally did work. decide to turn to cocaine? <laughs> yeah, exactly. In speed, yeah, yeah, it was intense. So I mean. Um, I just work differently than I normally work. Like I did, like usually there's a lot of humming and hawing and a lot of, uh, you know, I kind of put myself through the paces somehow. Like I, like I, like there's a lot of questioning that goes on and I, and I, sometimes I think it's useful, but, but in this case I didn't have that, I didn't have that luxury. So I decided on the format, like there's seven large paintings and 10 small paintings. There's 17 paintings in total, but the seven large ones, I kind of decided the structure of them pretty quickly like I didn't I wasn't going to reinvent the wheel with the structure so it's structures that I've used in the past yeah like I'm like a mountain or 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 like the ocean or something and yeah so um I'm not we don't have to talk too much about that but just just that it was I didn't give myself that kind of luxury in a sense of like ruminating for you know months on end about what the show was going to be i just launched right into it and i got most of the work up almost at the same time like i got a few pieces going at once so i was always working um and it was very very hard um and the way that i the way that i work is i'll take a simple structure like the night sky and i'll you know i'll paint it as best i can just sort of like whatever i think it is and then i'll like our conversation, I'll look at it and go, does it carry any of that energy? And if 99% of the time it doesn't at that initial stage. So then I have to figure out, okay, how, what do I do? And then I'll, I'll, I'll try something like, okay, let's just change it from light. You know, let's say if it was a white light painting, let's make it a dark blue painting. And then I'll go, you know, and I'll, oh, how's it going now? And every time I change something, like something is usually taken away. Something is but some new element is added and I just keep looking, but I don't really stop until I feel that sense of like, okay, this, this has that kind of, uh, this ha- you know, like the conversation today about something about kind of some kind of urgency or some kind of like meaning or some, kind, you're looking for something, but you don't know what it is. And you, it is mysterious and you can't put your finger on it. But when it kind of enters, like I try to create conditions for it to enter, and I use painting as this kind of app, this kind of mode of of moving things around, this kind of play almost, but kind of like inviting that 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 thing to kind of come come out, 
And when it comes out, it's like you feel it. It's powerful. But but it's funny because it's mostly not coming out. Like it's 99% of the time it's not in that state. And you you know, I, I leave the studio feeling kind of like, am I ever going to find this painting? Like, is it ever going to emerge as a thing? And anyway, so that's the, that show... The hard part about it wasn't doing that amount of work. It was not having that period to let things kind of like, like I had, I had to find this thing that I didn't even know what, what I was looking for. And I had to kind of invite this sort of energy in, but there's no way to, there's no way to speed that up. Right. So yep. the way that I did it was just working triple time, like working 15, 16 hours a day. That's all. Well, I I would imagine, though, there's something nice about, or maybe it's not easy, but there's something to be said for, you know, just barreling through and then afterwards standing back and looking at all of it and being like, okay, and sort of, you know, sifting through. I mean, what's the arrangement of stars? Mm-hmm. What is that title? Where'd that come from? Uh, it comes from a poem by um, Ted Hughes. Um, I can share, I can read it. It's a really beautiful poem. Um, it's funny too because it's, uh, it's about a rat. And um, <laughs> it's called that? The Rat's Vision. I didn't it's, see it. It's yeah. from a poem called. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a poem called The Song of a Rat. But, and I'll just read it, it's really short. Uh, it, uh, this is part two of this poem. Uh, it says it goes this like this: <clears throat> the rat hears the wind saying something in the straw, and the night fields that have come up to the fence, leaning their silence, the widowed land with its trees that know how to cry. The rat sees the farm bulk and beam and stone wobbling like reflection on water. The wind is pushing from the gulf, through the old barbed wire, in through the trench gateway past the gates of the ear, deep into the worked design of days, breathes onto the solitary snow crystal. The rat screeches, and do not go, cry the dandelions from their heads of folly. And do not go, cry the yard cinders, who have no future, only the infernal aftermath. And do not go, cries the cracked trough by the gate, Fatalist of starlight and zero. Stay, says the arrangement of stars, forcing the rat's head down into Godhead. Pretty good. So, hey, that poem just, I mean, that snippet of the poem has a million titles. Right. There's so much in there, but like this idea of the rat kind of looking up and seeing this farmhouse and being attracted to it but being afraid and then all of these things around it saying don't go, don't go uh, for me it's a little bit like like us humans and, and we're these little creatures and we're seeing something um, you know we're seeing something out there and we're attracted to it but we're afraid um, so anyway, the arrangement of stars was just a line that I took from that poem because I, I thought the poem expressed something about how I felt. But I also think this thinking of the stars as being arranged is nice. Yeah. The idea that there's a kind of like a like an artist right. kind of like kind of decorating or, or like arranging 
Um, I like the idea that nature has this, it's, it isn't just random. There's, there's a force behind it that's acting kind of like an artist. It's pretty cool stuff. I mean, that's, I love astronomy and, you know, Orion and, and like all those, mm-hmm. you know, like the stars and the, the sort of things we project onto it. It's pretty beautiful. Yeah. Rats, I don't know. I have a different relationship. I'll try to like. Well, the, yeah, rats, but but evolutionarily, I think we were this sort of rat-like creature. Oh yeah, we're right. Yeah, I mean, you fear what is close. And so to, uh, <laughs> we're kind of like cockroaches. To uh, <laughs> yeah, and I don't think I don't think the poem is necessarily like valorizing rats per se, but just sort of like thinking about this tiny creature in the cosmos, yeah. you know, and like and like, it's an interesting allegory for us in a way but yeah I, I hate rats totally <laughs> well you remember the uh, that movie The Secret of Nim I think it was mm-hmm. when we were kids that, I remember that movie I don't know how I felt about it but it it moved me like I was very it was very um, impactful on me whenever I it's a crazy it. movie man yeah it was really yeah, I, I gotta go too. back and watch it I'm sure there's some real deep stuff in there and uh, you know when you're a kid you just kind of like you it maybe it skims the surface but there's probably some heavy stuff in there i'm sure well i i mean not to not about secret to him but the, the idea of a poem or these rats like i know that stanley whitney uh titles his paintings a lot based on poetry and and i i do the same thing like all my titles are basically usually from a line that I find in, in a poem. But the cool thing about it is it forces me too to, to keep reading poetry because I'm always looking for like yeah. how, I, how I might describe a painting or how I might title a painting. So it's, a, it's sort of, I find the relate, like reading poetry just passively is one thing, but when you read it trying to find something, like a, like a phrase that might describe a feeling. Anyway, I, 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 uh, I think poetry is the most underrated thing going right now like very few people read poetry publications of poems get very little by way of you know readership and um and i think especially with painting there's this incredible dialogue i think between poetry and painting um i studied poetry as a student and i never put the two together like i i was i sort of separated them i did art and, and english as two separate parts of my degree but now as I get older I like I think uh, I think we, we we should really like with children for example and young people we should really emphasize studying poetry and writing poetry or prose like writing writing your thoughts and anyway it's what I'm saying is super obvious but it is just something to emphasize that I, I, I think especially with painting the, the two languages are almost the same and uh, and I I love it. I love, you know, I'm loving this new sort of newfound um, interest in poetry that I've been cultivating over the last few years. And um, yeah, maybe that would be, that would be an interesting podcast would be Definitely. poets and painters. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, I feel like that kind of symbiotic relationship I always have with music and art. Like I title a lot of paintings after yeah. songs and, you know, I love music as a parallel talking point, but poetry is right there. It's it's a very similar parallel thread, you know, mm-hmm. that I, I admit to, you know, when I was younger in those days of driving across the country and stuff, I was reading a lot of poetry, but, you know, I dip in here and there, and but uh, it's I'm probably, you know, not reading as much as I should or would like to, 
but uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's a great. Yeah, I think it's really important to have both sort of conceptually and literally in life a parallel kind of path to the thing that you're devoted to to sort of like move in and out of. It's it's uh, maybe mm-hmm. it's a little bit of not putting all your eggs in one basket, but also diversifying your understanding of things. You know, so I feel you know that it's a it's a great kind of uh, I don't know it's a support system in a way you know well yeah I totally I absolutely agree with that for me like I said earlier it's sort of like a language like reality nature the the universe are, is like a language and I think painting is is kind of exploring for me anyway the sort of the visual um, metaphorical kind of weight of light and color and things and then and then poetry is is looking at actually how words can be how the language of language yeah. is a uh, is another avenue is another tool it's just it's 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 like cinema or you know I've been listening to these I'm sure you hear this from a million people like I'm hearing it from everybody so it's getting kind of stale almost but I've been really enjoying this Rick Rubin's new book called The Creative Act that's a great book I just find it to just be so you know kind of patient and and easy but also very profound and i i just love i'm loving it like i usually don't like these kind of books that describe the creative process or to talk about art the artist way and stuff i don't usually feel it deeply with this one it's different i i'm i'm totally buying in like i i i really when he's when he when he articulates something I often feel like he's articulating my thoughts but the one thing I want to point out from that is just that he talks about creativity as applying to anything like a new recipe a design for a pair of shoes you know and even a a new way of driving home like walking instead of driving like anything can be creative like it's not about you know it's not just about making a product or doing something that's quote unquote creative it's applying creativity to anything that you do and I think just like I was saying everything you know the universe or whatever has this kind of language that we can explore I think creativity is is a creativity is a necessary it's like a lens through which to look at at our lives right like being creative in the way we approach things seems to be a very necessary and it's and i think we do a real disservice when we think that creativity is just about art because you know like with listening to rick rubin talk about it it applies to i mean he talks a lot about music but he also talks about painting but then he talks about even things like business like being creative in how you you know you come up with an idea that people might really want to you know be a part of so anyway no, that's great. just to say yeah. with poetry and with art and with all of it I think it boils down to this this feeling this this process of being creative and I think the process of being creative is very undervalued right. it's not it's not it's not something and with things like chat GTP and AI coming in a lot of this old sort of regurgitating sort of rote work that we used to do with kids like memorizing formulas and stuff that's going to go out the window yeah. creativity is the, is to me the answer to some of those things anyway I hear you um, the man that book last thing I'll say about it I just feel like when I read it I was like oh this is the book I didn't wasn't thinking about it but 
this is the book that needed to be written from someone from a different perspective that I didn't even realize it needed so badly to be written until I started reading it. And I was like, why the hell have I never read anything like this that takes it from yeah. out of this niche, you know, this is how to make it, or this is how to be successful, or this is how it works, to you know, the, it, opening it up, basically. Oh, it was just so good. Um, it's really good. Everyone should, should uh, see your show. Fly, walk, take a... Green, what was it? A green bus? Yeah, if you're in London. Is that bus? They, if you're in London, the green tortoise. Yeah, take a bus over to London. I'm sure there's an underwater roadway. To... Are you are you heading out there? Yeah, it'll be up for a while. I'll be yeah, I'll be there for the opening, um, and I'll be there for a week. And it's a whole new audience, a whole new gallery, a whole different. You know, and the thing with painting, which is really interesting. I mean, you're in Brooklyn, so you're kind of in painting ground zero in a way, but. But London has an incredible painting yeah. scene right now. Uh, I think it's partly because there's so many schools like Chelsea, St. Martin's, Wimbledon, Goldsmiths. It like just goes on and on. And a lot of them have these big painting programs. So um, when I was there not that long ago for another show at Modern Art, uh, I met all these people. And I'm like, wow, uh, London has this burgeoning painting scene. So... It's both, I'm excited, but I'm also have trepidation because I think there's a lot of great yeah, <laughs> painting happening. Love, and people are going to love your work there. It's great. Well, we'll see, we'll see. Dude, but, yeah, anyway, so it opens on Wednesday. And, yeah. I last showed there in 2003. Oh, really? That's a long time, isn't it? Time, time to go oh, back. Oh, actually, yeah. maybe I had one show there that was like a halfway show, Burlington Gardens or something, but I didn't go. It didn't feel like a show. But yeah, I miss well, it. The, I miss the, the feeling. I mean, London's great. There's like a great, I don't know. It really is. Like I've been in London a few times, but you know, when I used to live in Amsterdam, I would visit my, my sister-in-law in London. But so the show at Modern Art was called uh, The Moth and the Thunderclap. And it was a, it was a show of artists uh, loosely connected to Charles Birchfield. And it was curated by Simon Grant and... So it's all the stuff we've been talking about, landscape and, and stories and narrative and like the kind of like existential thread that, you know, sort of spiritualism and yeah. whatever. So, so I went for that show and this was like not a blockbuster show, but almost because there was like 40 artists in it. So the, the opening was just like jammed, yeah, nice. packed, yeah. packed Excited. to the rafters. So then when I, you know, going to London from for that show was like um, kind of perfect in a way because there's so many people to talk to and there's so much to do and meeting, you know, the other artists like Andrew Cranston was at the show, like he wasn't at the opening, but he came and saw the show. And so I got in this little bit of a conversation with Andrew Cranston, which was so cool because it's like, you know, some of these artists are like my heroes, you know, like you know, people that I've been following for a long time and I love their work and to all of a sudden be engaged in a conversation was really cool. So that was a good intro to, to London and that was only a couple months ago. So uh, so the show with Stephen Friedman is kind of building a little bit on on that conversation that I began. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'm looking forward to actually going back and, and spending more time in London, like maybe living there for for a little like a couple months or something but um i have these kids in school so i have to figure out how to uh how to navigate all that but um uh, but anyway yeah it, from your dad, it'll be, they'll be fine just leave them 
That's what I want. Well, I think that is exactly what I'm planning to do. I think I'm going to take the little guy with me and just take pull him out of school for a year. Yeah. I mean, that's... I, listen, if someone told me when I was in school, hey, we're going to go live in London for a year, I'd be like, what, my bag is already packed. <laughs> 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 Sounds great. Well, listen, good luck with the show. Yeah. It was great to talk. Thanks, man. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for the opportunity. This is our second conversation. And I, I am... I am <laughs> You will not believe how fast I saved this to the cloud after we thought. <laughs> well, the cool thing is we, we did totally, we went a totally different direction yeah, on this one. So that was fun. Yeah. Well, you're, you've inadvertently made a case for me at some point in my life of doing like a, 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 a follow-up interview, which I've never done one. So, but yeah, that's the thing. We, we are complex creatures. We evolve, we change, we tell our stories. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it was great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. No, this I like. I love these. I love um, these sort of long-form conversations. And you're one of the few out there. So, yeah, good job. Yeah. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast at the website, soundvisionpodcast.com. Also, on that website, you can find the official book of the podcast, Why I Make Art which is available on Altelier Editions. You can get it everywhere you find art books. Uh, many thanks to Sky, many thanks to Golden Artist Colors, many thanks to Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Make sure you check out those sponsors. If you happen to be in London, either now or within the next month, make sure you check out Sky's show at Stephen Friedman Gallery, The Arrangement of Stars which he mentioned and did a little poetry on. Uh, if you can help the podcast immensely by going to wherever you download your podcast and leave a rating and review or telling a friend or sharing it, help spread the word. We've got some great episodes coming up. We've talked to some, some really great people. So stay tuned, stay subscribed, and keep working.